0: know that uh, after we sing a bit, that we open God's Word together and read the passage that we'll be studying a little bit later on. So uh, we'd love if you had a Bible to open to Matthew 25 and to follow along with us this morning. Uh, I'll be reading it, and if you don't have a Bible, it's on the screen behind me or on one of the monitors around the room. Matthew 25, we'll be starting in verse 1 and going through verse 13. I love just pause. 25, verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! And all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps says to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. The wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. While they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. and the door was shut. Afterwards the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore for you. Know neither the day nor the hour. This is God's word. Let's continue singing. percent of all adults have what's called a recurring dream.
1: If you're part of that 60 to 75% today, you already know what I'm talking about. A recurring dream occurs when you dream the same dream consistently throughout your life or even during a certain time period in your life. It's often triggered by a stressful event and then pops back up as you Experience more stressful situations. It often ends unresolved. The classic example cited in the research, and I know my dad had this one, is dreaming that you have this huge final exam and everything rides on this exam. Whether or not you will pass the class, it all rides on this. But you forget about it right up until the morning of and then all of a sudden it dawns on you today is the day of the test but you never studied you're already late to class so you rush there and you notice that the doors are locked you can see the other classmates inside already fast at work working on the test the door is locked so you start pounding on the door let me in then you wake up I have a recurring dream myself stems back to my experience in high school. During high school, I was uh, part of the theater department. There's a longer story there, and you can feel free to ask me about it. And Anyway, I have this recurring dream, and it actually relates to a real-life event where last minute, I was asked to fill in for a major part in a little play that I wasn't involved in. And like behind the behind the curtain, I was like literally going through the lines before having to jump out on the stage. So... You know, at that time in my life, it was pretty stressful. So now in my recurring dream, I'm cast for a part. I get the lines. But every time I try to sit down and look at the lines, something urgent happens. And I can feel the date getting closer and closer. And then I actually lose my copy of the lines. I can't find them anywhere. And then it's the day of the play. And I, and I think, okay, okay, I'll just get there early. I'll go backstage. Someone else have a copy of the lines. I'll go through them and I'll just... know, I'll just try to do whatever I can. And on my way, I I keep getting interrupted by one thing after another, after another. And then I finally get there and something else happens and then something else happens. And and all of a sudden the curtain is rising. The auditorium is filled. And I realize I never even looked at my lines. And then I wake up. Lisa and I call this dream my stress dream because it usually pops up during times of stress or a big transition. Actually, when I first started here as a pastor, I had this dream. But interestingly, one detail morphed. Instead of not being able to look at my lines, I'm not able to look at the passage I'm scheduled to preach. Various things keep coming up, and then all of a sudden I'm standing back here behind the pulpit, and I realize I never even looked at the passage. And then I wake up. Thankfully, I haven't had that dream in several years. Let me just say as an aside, this does underline the seriousness that we as a preaching team give to the privilege and the responsibility of declaring the Word. We don't want to just get up here and spout off whatever occurs to our minds, but to do the work in the text and in prayer. Yes, trusting the Holy Spirit throughout the process, process, but also recognizing that the Holy Spirit... that relates back to the recurring dreams. What does each one have in common, including the classic example of the final exam? Each one is about not wanting to arrive at an important event unprepared. And research says that this is actually a dominant theme when they study people's recurring dreams. Across humanity, people have a recurring dream centering on being unprepared. It shows up again and again. It could be a presentation, a huge licensing exam to get into your profession, an evaluation at work, a job interview, a new phase of life, whatever it is, this phenomenon points to an almost universal desire to not arrive to an important event unprepared. It's a pretty rare breed of folks who just revel at the thought of totally winging it for something important to them. In general, we don't want to be unprepared when it really counts. And yet, what would happen if I forgot the lines to a little play? In the long run, nothing. And what would happen if I failed a test? Don't get me wrong, I know that there's a lot of important tests out there, but in the long run, when I'm looking back at my life, is that what I'm going to
0: be thinking about?
1: What would happen if we didn't feel prepared for a new phase of life. In the long run, I believe we'd look back and see that God gave us what it took, even though it was hard. Of all the things we want to be prepared for, our passage today urges us to not arrive unprepared for the most important event of our lives when we are face to face with Jesus. In the long run, what is more important than? Of all the things we so desire to be prepared for, where does this land? Jesus is coming back. That's what He's been emphasizing over and over leading up to our passage. He's just days away from His crucifixion, resurrection, and later ascension to heaven. So He's been teaching His disciples about His return, His second coming. He recently just got done saying directly, all the peoples of the earth, will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. So at this point, if we're following along with Jesus, the question is not whether He will return, but whether we will be prepared. And that's the subject of the parable to which Jesus now turns. Our passage today is found in Matthew 25, verses 1-13. through 13. So I want to invite you to turn there if you can you're using a phone or we're in the ESV and if you don't have a Bible, feel free to stop by the Welcome Center downstairs after worship and we'd love to give you one. Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. It's known as the parable of the ten virgins or rather the parable of the ten bridesmaids. This parable asks the question, are we prepared for the coming of Christ? Are we prepared for for the day when we will see Him. We'll walk through this passage in three main scenes with each one giving us a different insight what it means to be prepared. The first scene begins like this, Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom parable opens with the anticipation that a bridegroom is coming. And from the biblical context, we know that the bridegroom is a picture of Jesus. So right away, we can see this is about awaiting the arrival of Jesus. The ones awaiting His arrival are described as ten virgins, ten young women. The cultural information that we have from this time tells that these these young women are, are most likely bridesmaids in this story. And this information also helps us to understand the scenario here. You see, during this time in ancient Palestine, weddings most often took place in two phases. Much like ours today, there was the ceremony and the reception. The custom was for the groom with a few close friends to arrive at the bride's house where the official ceremony was conducted. It was conducted at her house. And from there, after nightfall, the bridal party formed a torch lit procession to escort the new couple to the home of the groom, where the celebration banquet, the reception, would begin, often going late into the night. These torch lit processions were a big deal. In fact, they still take place today. And no doubt it was an honor to bear one of the torches. From my understanding, considered almost a sacred responsibility. In other words, big deal. This is a big deal. So that's the the background going on here. We pick up as the wedding ceremony has concluded at the home of the bride. And next will be the banquet at the home of the groom. So the bridesmaids are sent out ahead of time to begin to form the procession. As soon as they catch sight of the bridegroom, the the procession will officially begin. So the the bridesmaids grab their torches, head down the path, and begin to wait. Verses 2 through 5 continue. Five of them are foolish, and five are wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept notice that half the bridesmaids had brought along extra containers of oil fuel for their torches and half of them had neglected to do so they just kind of ran out the door they just kind of headed out the five with extra oil are called wives and the five without are called foolish why Why is extra oil so important Because let me, let me put it this way if you know you absolutely need get somewhere very important and it's only at five percent what do you do you bring away to torches it. it would be foolish not but these bridesmaids did not have enough fuel for their torches what's so wrong with this what's so offensive here Because this was a serious responsibility. This was a big deal. They would know going into it, this is what the bridal party does. As a best man once, I knew going into it that during the ceremony, I was responsible for the rings. I kept like reaching in my pocket, checking them, making sure that they were there. That was part of my role. Imagine if being asked, do you have the rings? Bondi. Oh, the rings! Where are they? I just, I just kind of came up here, right? No one wants to be that guy. Or imagine being a bridesmaid and showing up to a wedding two minutes before it started, wearing sweatpants and a high school T-shirt, like Lane Tech, saying, "Hey, sorry, I was double booked today." Because as a best man, or as a bridesmaid, you know going into it, this is what I do. This is what is expected of me. This is my responsibility. When you know that ahead of time, to not be prepared shows that you really didn't care
0: in the first place.
1: It wasn't important enough to you to be ready. We get ready, we prepare, and something matters to us. I remember rehearsing, calling Lisa on the phone for the first time. I wanted to be ready. I didn't want to call her and be like, uh, hey, Lisa, uh, do you, uh, like food? Okay. Yeah, cool. Me too. Me too. Uh, so I prepared. Afterwards, I hung up at the phone and I was like, inhaler. You see, being prepared shows that something matters to you. We prepare when something matters to us. And that's what it comes down to for these five bridesmaids who didn't bring oil. It was more than a mere momentary lapse, their actions show it wasn't important enough to them. They didn't take a serious responsibility serious. They knew this was the expectation going into it. Yet they didn't care enough. They just went along with the others. And I'm camping on this because these bridesmaids are a reflection of us. This is a call to not be careless. This is a call to take this seriously. To not just go along could have possibly worked out for these five bridesmaids if the bridegroom had arrived immediately. But as was typical during this time, he was delayed. We don't know why, but in a culture that was more loose on the concept of time, and with all the things that could come up with the wedding, it was probably more common than not. It was to be expected. For you and I, when you go to the ER and you don't have something extremely urgent, you plan on waiting rarely happens on our timeline. For the bridesmaids, the wise took this into account and the foolish did not. They weren't prepared for the fact that the bridegroom would come on his timeline not theirs. For whatever reason, the bridegroom was delayed. So we watch as the bridesmaids wait, peering down the road. After a little while, they get drowsy and fall asleep and Their torches burn out. The fact that they're asleep means that the bridegroom's arrival will be unexpected. They won't be able to calculate it or see it coming. They won't be able to see it from far off. They won't know it's happening until the moment it happens. And this gives us our first insight about the return of Christ. We have to be prepared. Like the bridegroom, Jesus has been teaching that his return will af- it will be after a long period of waiting, a delay. And Like the bridegroom, it will be unexpected. That's what Jesus reiterates at the end of this parable. Verse 13, take a look. For you neither know the day nor the hour. If you have your Bible open, glance over really quick to chapter 24. I want us to see how much Jesus emphasizes this fact verse 36 I'm shortening some of these verses but concerning that day and hour no one knows 24-42 for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming verse 44 for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect finally verse 50 the Master will come on a day when He does not expect Him And at an hour, he does not know. So what what does that mean for us? It means to be constantly ready. Because we don't know when it will be. It's outside of our timeline. Zoe's birthday is on Tuesday. So that means almost exactly two years ago, the doctor told us that she could come at any day. And yet, it was also outside of our timeline. Zoe didn't contact us ahead of time and say, Hey guys, would now be a good time? We had to be constantly ready. And it impacted the way we lived. It changed the way we made our decisions. It changed the way we made our plans. It changed our outlook. Listen, Christ is coming at a time when we do not know. Has this reality impacted the way we live? The bridesmaids are startled in the middle of the night, awakened to a voice shouting, The bridegroom is here! The bridegroom is here! Let the procession begin! We watch as they scramble to their feet and grab their torches. Within no time we see ten torches glowing in the night, but immediately five flicker and sputter out. We see another flicker of light as the bridesmaids, as five of the bridesmaids try to light their torches again, but there's no fuel Five others with torches are going on ahead. They call out to them, Hey, our lamps won't light. Give us your oil. Five with torches turn back and reply, We can't. There's not enough. Hurry quick to the bodega down the road and buy some for yourselves. At first, the dialogue between the bridesmaids might catch us off guard, right? Like, doesn't it seem a little bit like the wise bridesmaids are being selfish, kind of rude. But if they only have enough for themselves, then they're right. If they share, they will all run out halfway. And then what will become of the procession? But the interesting thing about this dialogue Is that it's not 100% necessary to the plot. Think about it. We already know that the five foolish bridesmaids don't have enough oil. So when the bridegroom comes, we could feasibly skip down to verse 10 with the bridesmaids running out to purchase more, and the story would still make sense. So what does this dialogue contribute? You see, in the end, this is not a parable about sharing. About being prepared. It's making a point, and that is this. When
0: Jesus returns, we will each be individually responsible before Him.
1: Like the foolish bridesmaids, we won't be able to look to others. We won't be able to benefit by association. And that leads us to our second insight about the return of Christ. To borrow language from a highly respected scholar that I read, we have to be prepared. That mean for us, it means that when Christ returns, no one else's faith will be able to benefit me. Not my parents' faith, not my spouse's faith, not my church's statement of faith. I won't be automatically right with God because I'm so because I'm associated with others who are. I will be individually responsible for my own faith, and what that means for us is that we must own our faith. Let me just say that it's possible to be raised in the church, to know all the truths and yet never own your faith. It's possible to be here simply because this is what we always do. It's possible to be here because our spouse always brings us or or, or our parents drag us out of bed. And you know what? We absolutely need encouragement from others. Be grateful for that. But the question is... will walk with the Lord on our own. We learn from these bridesmaids when Jesus returns we will be individually responsible before the Lord. In other words, we won't be able to move off of others. David Platt sums it up. On that final day, it won't matter what home you're in, whom you're married to, or what your parents believed. Your life will stand alone. Verse three continues in verses ten through twelve. We read, and while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know. You. At last, the bridegroom appears bridesmaids who are ready quickly take their torches and light the path. We watch as the glowing procession journeys off towards the bridegroom's home where the celebration will begin. And meanwhile, the other bridesmaids are are busy racing into town trying to buy oil. You see, sometimes the shops would say open late for special occasions. So like Chicagoans trying to buy something in Iowa, they rush the overly casual shop owner who sells them the oil, light their torches and run back to find that the bridegroom and the crowd have already come. Home. Off in the distance they can see the faint glow of the procession so they hurry on in that direction. A little while later they arrive at the bridegroom's home. They can hear the celebration going on inside. Then we see that the door is shut. They knock and call out, Lord, Lord, open the door. And Then we hear his sobering response. by the end of this parable, we realize this is no longer about a little countryside wedding. You see, most, brides, most bridesmaids would not say to a bridegroom, Lord, Lord. See, most bridegrooms would not say to bridesmaids,
0: "I do not know it.
1: But it's like all of a sudden in the final two verses, we are transported from a wedding scene to the reality it has been illustrating this whole time. When we are before the Lord on the last day, That's why the the language has all of a sudden intensified. And it's startling, to be honest. It sounds harsh. I do not know you. Some have insisted that this can't be Jesus. Maybe you're wrestling with it. Listen, I want us to know Jesus is the embodiment of love. If we want to know what love looks like with skin on Sometimes when we hear that, we imagine a hippie Jesus playing the acoustic guitar and singing campfire songs with his disciples, complete with a cartilage ring in his ear and Chacos on his feet. But Jesus was often bold. He was often bold. When you go through his parables like we have this summer, it's hard to miss that. He has strong words to say. He just says them out of pure love. The words of this parable are not ultimately spoken to five fictitious bridesmaids, but to us. It's a message to us. Out of love, Jesus is urgently warning us not to find ourselves where they found themselves. This parable speaks of the bridegroom, Jesus, who was delayed in his return. Do you know the reason Scripture gives for the delay in Christ's return? 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That helps explain the strong words at the end of our parable. Jesus does not wish that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I believe These strong words are meant to grab our attention and say, in essence, do not let the door close. Do not let the door close before coming to a relationship with Christ. A relationship. That's what the words mean. That's what the words mean. I do not know you. All throughout the Bible, the words, Bridesmaids, their actions show that they did not have a relationship with the one they ultimately called Lord. They did not care enough to be prepared. It's not that they failed at this one point and and then He disowned them, but that He simply did not know them. They did not have a relationship. As one author points out, maybe these bridesmaids would object, but we said yes to the invitation. But it's not about that about a
0: relationship.
1: You and I have an open opportunity to have a relationship with Jesus. And maybe you said yes to an invitation. Maybe you prayed a prayer years ago and yet it never impacted your life. This is about a daily relationship with Jesus. And the door is open wide for that. It was flung open by Jesus' death and resurrection. Yet this parable warns us there will be a time when that opportunity closes. We are before the Lord and we don't know when that will be. So I'm of Jesus calls to me. Jesus, it's an, it's an active, it's an, it's an active idea, not a passive one. What then really does it mean? To conclude, I'd I'd like to offer one thing that it doesn't mean, and three things that it does. First, what doesn't it mean? It doesn't mean to be distracted. When you think about a guard on the wall, the opposite of watchfulness is distractedness. And I believe that's a major danger for us. We live in a day that is especially distracted by so many things. Are we distracted? I fear that we might distract ourselves to death. Technology can distract us. Our phones constantly clamoring for us. Bins watching TV shows. Passing hours playing video games. Worries can distract us. I know that worries are very real. But if we're not deliberate about help from God and help from others and slowly overcoming, they can take over, monopolizing our mental space. The things of life can distract us. Got to be here. Got to go there. Got to do this. Some of these things are okay to a certain extent. But it's about our focus. We can become so focused on these little things that we never stop and think I Jesus. And what am I pouring my life into? This parable calls us to wake up. In fact, that's the literal translation of the word watch. It literally means to be awake. Let's wake up from being distracted to being watchful. So that's what it doesn't mean. So what does it mean to watch? What does it look like practically speaking? things. Number one, believe. The first thing we must do to watch, to be prepared for the return of Christ, is to believe. Believe that Jesus died and rose again to make us right with God and to forgive us our sins, to cover them completely, totally, forever, permanently. It starts with admitting our need of Him, that we cannot save ourselves no matter how hard we try, and then turning to God and beginning a relationship with Jesus. A relationship that begins in an instant, but then lasts forever. A relationship that changes us from the inside out. This is the foundation of what it means to be ready. Everything else is built upon this, or it will crumble. Number one, believe. Number two, love one another. The overall emphasis of Jesus' teaching on being prepared is the proof that we believe. The actions that flow from it. And a major undeniable aspect of this is how we love one another. After Jesus concludes his his parables in Matthew twenty five about being ready for his return, he gives one more teaching. It's called the sheep and the goats. And I believe, along with others, that it's it's a picture of what it looks like to be ready. Jesus has just taught about being ready. And then He gives us a picture of what it looks like to be ready. This should characterize our lives as we wait for Christ's return. So if your Bibles are open, Matthew 25, starting at verse 35. I'll paraphrase some of this. Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous answer, Lord, when did we do this for you? And Jesus says, verse 40, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. As we wait for Christ's return, we are to love one another. Not just in word, but in action with concrete sacrifices. Acts of service. Is love one another. See, watching is he active, not passive. Number one, believe. Number two, love one another. Number three, make disciples. That is the last thing that Jesus commissioned to his followers before he ascended into heaven. Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is what we are to do. As Richard Baucom, a scholar from England, says, the wait for Christ's return is filled with the mission of the church. All of Scripture and all of history is one grand story about God's plan to reach and restore us to Himself. And that will ultimately be fulfilled when Jesus returns. But until then, the last step here on earth has been entrusted to us. To His church. Can you believe it? By the power of the Spirit, the baton has been passed to us wait for Christ's return is filled with the mission of the church. And that doesn't just mean Sunday mornings, but Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. Taking the church outside of these four walls and living on mission wherever we go. The wait for Christ's return is filled with the mission of the church. And Jesus promises us, Behold, I am with you always. Always. question, are we prepared for the coming of Christ? Because we learned from the bridesmaids, it won't happen on our timeline. We won't be able to mooch off of others. We don't want to put it off. Are we prepared? It looks like refusing to let the distractions eclipse things of infinite worth and by actively believing in Christ, loving one another, making decisions.